Dear great God and Father, we do thank you for the work of your church. We thank you for these gifts. We pray that you would bless them and use them and multiply them in your service. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, reading verses 6 through 10, and this morning I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's Word as it's found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would sweeten this word in our hearts and in our minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life, praying in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, be seated, please. Uh, The last three weeks of January are typically my busiest weeks at work, and I must admit it was just wonderful to have a ride uh, from Oviedo to Vero Beach this morning. Uh, That was like the ultimate of uh, decompression, um, just listening to some uh, good music. Uh, interesting, it doesn't always happen, but some of the songs that I listened to just reminded me of my mom and dad who have passed in the past couple of years and uh, just brought a smile to my face thinking about the privilege that I had to be raised in their home uh, by those particular parents in particular. So uh, just grateful for the opportunity to be here uh, just because it gave me the opportunity to have a wonderful kind of personal, quiet, reflecting time that, as you know, in this busy life, we don't always get a chance to have. Well, the last time I was here, we preached on the Ten Commandments as a whole, how to count the Ten Commandments. And as you know, throughout the history of God's people, there have been various opinions on how to count the Ten Commandments. But there's one thing that there has been no variance of opinion on, and that is that we have to make the Ten Commandments count. Uh, We have to see how the Ten Commandments uh, come into our lives and uh, affect the way we live. And so, Lord willing, over the next uh, number of times I'm down here, we're going to look at some but not all of the Ten Commandments, uh, asking in particular, how does this commandment count? Now, this morning, as I have read, we're focusing on verses 6 through 10. Uh, These verses, 6 through 10, really are a unit that hang together. 
Uh, Notice for one thing. Uh, In verse 6, it says, I am the Lord your God. See, God is speaking to us uh, in the first person. Verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, And if you go down to verse 9, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God. Uh, in, In these verses, God is speaking to us in the first person. But go to the um, go to the next verse, verse eleven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. All of a sudden, God's not speaking to us in first person, but Moses is speaking to us about God in the third person. And so, in our verses six through ten, uh, they hang together as a unit, just on the fact that God is speaking to us in a special way. In this word, in the first person. And also, as we saw, all of the commandments that focus our attention on our love for God all give us a motivation or a reason as to why we're to keep that commandment. And in these verses that I have read, there's one reason that governs all of verses 6 through 10. And so this morning, we're going to be preaching on this unit, verses 6 through 10. But in this unit, there are three sections, and we're going to look at them one at a time. First of all, there's one declaration that God gives us, and that's in verse 6. And then that's followed by four prohibitions. Now, we're accustomed to thinking of some of these verses as containing two commandments, but as we're going to see, there are actually four commandments embedded here. There are four prohibitions. So one declaration, four prohibitions, and then, of course, at the end, the second half of verse 9 and verse 10, we're given one motivation as to why we are to put this word into practice in our lives. So let's begin with verse 6, that one declaration. Verse 6 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. One declaration. And this declaration is a declaration of identity. Now, in the ancient world, whether it was in civil matters or in religious matters or in international matters, people were related to each other by what we call a covenant. And covenants always started by identifying who the greatest party in the covenant is. And since, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the Ten Commandments are a summary of the covenant, we're not surprised that they start out by identifying the chief player in the covenant, I am the Lord your God. Not Baal, the god of the Canaanites. Not Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. Not Dagon the god of the Philistines, not Ea, one of the Assyrian gods, Uh, none of the Egyptian gods. The Ten Commandments start with this declaration of identity, I am the Lord your God. And uh, that language, the Lord your God, reminds us that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who made covenant with them, who called them to be his people, It reminds us that the God who's giving the Ten Commandments is the God who told Noah to build an ark and delivered Noah from the the flood that destroyed the world that then was. It reminds us that this is the God who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, the Lord your God. 
It reminds us that he's the one who is the maker of heaven and earth. And so as we approach the Ten Commandments, we don't start with do this or don't do that. We start with this declaration telling us who the true and living God is and that he is our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we start with this declaration of identity, I am the Lord your God. And then it's also a declaration of grace. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before God tells us anything to do, before he prohibits us from doing this, that, or the other thing, he tells us who he is and what he has done for us. Salvation by grace always precedes obedience by gratitude. We have to not go past the beginning of the Ten Commandments to know that when we obey God, when we strive to obey God, we are not doing it because we're trying to earn something from Him. We're doing it because He has already graciously done something for us. Grace before gratitude. He has already saved us. He's already delivered us. Uh, Jesus says to us this morning, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the house of the slavery of sin into an abundant life. Therefore, everything, this is like the book of Romans, isn't it? Paul takes basically 11 chapters to tell us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Then comes chapter 12. In view of all that God has done for you so freely by His grace, this is how you are to respond to Him out of loving gratitude. Where did Paul get that idea to frame Romans, and for that matter, all of his other letters that way? He understood the Ten Commandments. He understood the nature of our covenant relationship with God. That our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that it's because it's by grace that we seek to obey God by keeping his commandments. So this first word starts with one declaration. I am the Lord your God, who already brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, into the land that's a land of abundant living. Then we move on after that, and only after that, to a series of four prohibitions. This is verse 7 through verse 9. Look at verse 7. That's the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. The first prohibition, no other gods before me. And before me can be used in a variety of ways in Hebrew, just like it can in English. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that the preposition before can both be spatial and temporal? I am standing before you. Before I got here, I got out of my car. We can use before both spatially and temporally. But we can also use before in other ways. 
Don't put your work before your family. Now, that's neither temporal nor spatial. That's a matter of priority. And that's probably the sense here. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, it is, it is spatial. No other gods in my presence. But the point is that the Lord your God is the only sovereign. He is the only true and living God. Now, he does use agents, doesn't he? When God sets about to do things in the world, whether in the world of the Bible, in our world, he often uses agency. We speak of God acting immediately, that's no help, or immediately through agency. And God, most of the time, we we read about God's providence, most of the time God works immediately through agency. He works through the agency of angels, even though we don't see them. He works through the agency of other people. If you're sick, God can heal you immediately. And I don't mean instantaneously. I mean without the aid of any medicine, any doctor, any physician. God is able to work immediately. But most of the time in his providence, he doesn't do that. Most of the time, he works immediately through human agency. But while God does use agents, he does not share ultimate authority. And he does not share ultimate power with any other. Period. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, we're going to read, For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. God of gods means ultimate, most high. Lord of lords, ultimate, most high. He's the great one. He's the mighty one. He is the awesome God alone. He shares his authority and his power ultimately with no one else. This is why Paul said in 1 Timothy that God is the blessed and only sovereign, the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, while Paul's writing in Greek... He's, it's just thinly clothed Hebrew. That king of kings, lord of lords, that's the way of saying ultimate. Uh, the song of Solomon in Hebrew is called the song of songs, and that means it's the ultimate song. It's the very best song. This is why John says in Revelation 17 that they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for the lamb is the lord of lords. And the king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So Jesus says to you this morning, I am. I am the Lord your God, Lord of lords and king of kings. I use agencies. I use agents in all sorts of different ways. But I share my ultimate power and authority with no one else. I am the one who has brought you out of the bondage of sin 
and brought you into a wonderful life of abundance. After all, that's why I came, not to harm you, to kill you, to destroy you, but that you might have life in all of its abundance. So the first prohibition, no other gods. And that's followed by a second, a second prohibition, no images. Now, this morning is not the uh, time and place to get into a discussion as to whether or not this means you can't have a portrait of your parents on your wall in your living room. The answer to that is yes, you can. Uh, this is not a categorical prohibition of all pictures and all images of any kind. All we have to do is read God's own discussion and his own description of the temple. And the temple had images all over it. The temple had images of palm trees and pomegranates and lilies and cherubim. And so God gave the directions for how to construct the temple, and he provided imagery, images in the temple, so this can't mean that God doesn't want us to have any images of any kind. There's something else going on here in the context, and that is that has to be seen in the context of how Israel's ancient neighbors thought. Israelites would have been considered really strange. And we see this in the New Testament about New Testament Jews. Because when somebody went into the temple, there wasn't an image of their God there. Every religious group who worshipped any deity in the ancient world had an image of their God. Why? Well, because ancient Israel, ancient, ancient Near Easterners thought that the presence of deity was mediated to them through images. If there weren't an image, they couldn't have contact with the deity. And when they were in the presence of the image, they were in the presence of the deity. And that's why they would come and bring things, sacrifices, and put them at the feet of the image. They understood that the image and the deity weren't the same, but they also thought that they were so connected that you couldn't serve the one without the other. Ancients thought that the only access to deity was through an image. That the presence of God came to them through these images. And God said earlier in Deuteronomy, Israelites, that's not the way that you are to think. My presence comes to you not through an image, My presence comes to you through my Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who brings the presence of God, and the Spirit is spirit. Have any of you found a way to create an image of the invisible? See, because the Spirit of God mediates the presence of God in our lives, and because the Spirit is spirit, there can be no images. Now, what the ancient Israelites didn't at least fully understand, but that we do understand, and that is that the presence of God is mediated to us, not only through the Spirit of God, but also through the Son of God. This is why, again, Paul says in 1 Timothy, there is one God. See, that's what this word is all about, recognizing the Lord as one 
as the only God. There is one God and there is one mediator. There's one way to have the presence of God mediated into your life, brought into your life. One mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You see, one of the reasons, the ancients were right in this sense. There has to be some way for the presence of an ultimate to come in to the presence of the finite and the limited. They understood that the presence of deity had to be mediated. They were right there, but they were wrong in thinking that that presence could be mediated through this or that piece of wood or silver. God says, no, it is by my spirit that my presence comes. And ultimately, what we know now more fully than they did was that that presence comes mediated through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the reason why God said no images is not because we don't need mediation between God and man. It's because the time had not yet come for the true mediator to be here. It's kind of like leaving an empty seat at the Thanksgiving table because you know someone is coming, even though they're not there yet and you got to start the meal. You know they're coming, and so you save a seat for them. God knew that the perfect mediator was going to come, and so God said, no images in that seat. you got to leave it empty until Jesus comes as the true mediator. And closely related to that, the other reason why God said no images back then is because one day the true image of God would come. His name is Jesus. That's what Paul tells us in the New Testament, that Jesus is the image of God. If you want to see what God is like, you can't look at something carved by human beings out of wood or stone or silver. If you want to see what God is like, you have to look into the face of Jesus Christ because he is the image of God. And in him, we are being restored into that image. So, because God so graciously as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Adam, and Eve, the God of all creation, has so graciously delivered you from bondage, he says, since I have done that, no other gods and no other images. No images because my presence will come to you through my spirit, and my presence will come to you ultimately Through the work of my son. Third prohibition. No bowing down. Now it says no bowing down to them. And given that we all remember what our English teachers taught us about how to read English. We're most naturally to think that the them refers to the idols. Right? Because that's the closest antecedent. We're not supposed to use a pronoun with regard to something back here, if there's something in between that that pronoun could lead to, because that might lead to confusion. Well, Hebrew mothers never taught their kids about the rules of antecedent pronouns. Uh, And as a matter of fact, when you look at this verb, this verb of bowing down, it's typically used not with regard to idols, but with regard to gods. And so although the idols have been mentioned, when it says don't bow down to them, The them goes all the way back to no other gods, no images of me, 
And no bowing down to them, no bowing down to those other gods. Now, bowing is um, not part of our culture, is it? Um, About the only place we would see it in our culture is if we went to a play. And at the end of the play, uh, the actors and actresses would bow. Traditionally, the men would bow, the women would curtsy. That's about the only place we have bowing. Um, Asian culture still has some form of bowing. Some Asian cultures do. Um, if you are among traditional Koreans and they go to greet each other without knowing anything about them, you can always tell who the eldest is. Because the younger bow a little bit further, the eldest, because of honor, bows the least. You can always tell the age of Koreans when they bow to each other. Uh, in Chinese culture, bowing is pretty much gone. But this is a different kind of bowing altogether. Probably the best picture here would be to picture a Muslim on a prayer mat, knees on the ground, forehead on the ground. That's pretty much the picture that we have when this verb is used, to bow down. No bowing down to these uh, supposed other gods. Now, one thing that's interesting, that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament... People are tempted to bow down to angels when they encounter them. The angels always reject that action. The angels never allow anyone to bow down to them. Because bowing down is an act of worship, which is why some translations don't have bow down. Some translations have worship. It's interesting also that in the pages of the New Testament... People bow down to Jesus, and unlike the angels, Jesus never says, oh, no, no, don't do that. What angels reject, because they know it is due to God and God alone, Jesus accepts. And without saying it in so many words, by his acceptance, Jesus is saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When the commandment says, you shall not bow down to them, that is other gods, I'm excluded from that because I am not other gods. I am the Lord your God. And so Jesus accepts this bowing down of worship. We're prohibited from worshiping any other but the true and the living God. And our worship is triune. You may notice that I often pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because we need to be reminded continually that we are Trinitarians. Uh, we, We do focus on Christ as the mediator who brings us to the Father by the power of the Spirit, but we are Trinitarians. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each with their own role to play. And, and, and as we, in the Westminster tradition, as we ask, what is God? We confess that God is three persons, equal in power and glory, all worthy of our worship. And when Jesus accepts the worship of human beings, he's claiming his place in our tri-fold God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One more prohibition, no serving. Now, it's interesting that 
even in our translations like the ESV, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, these versions tend to try their very best to replicate the Hebrew and the Greek that's underlying the translation. But you'll notice that in the ESV that I read from, and if you have an NIV, it's going to be the same, it says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Kind of joins these two things real closely together. But if we were looking at the Hebrew text, it's very clear, you shall not bow down to them and you shall not serve them. It's another prohibition. It's a fourth prohibition. You shall not serve them, which some translations, again, use the word uh, for worship. Um, When we look at this idea, once again, like the verb bow down, this verb serve is typically used not for what ancients did with regard to idols, but what they did with regard to their deities. No serving them. God is saying that your ultimate allegiance is to be him, to be toward him and toward him alone. Not only the ancient world, but the modern world is just filled with opportunities for power and for pleasure. Powers and pleasures vie for our hearts day after day. Not 24-7, but like 28-8. Powers and pleasures vying for that ultimate place in our hearts where we are serving them. You know, false worship, idolatry is not so much about what's going on externally. It's about what's going on in our hearts. That's why God said to the people through Ezekiel, tell these people that they are creating idols in their hearts. What's an idol? An idol is not something out of wood or stone. An idol is anything that we place in our hearts to which we give our ultimate allegiance. That which is ultimately controlling our decisions, our actions. I doubt that any of you have any idols in your homes. Uh, We all have idols in our hearts. Those things that we actually give higher allegiance to and allow to control our decisions and our actions more than we allow God and his word to control those decisions and our actions. That's serving them. Our ultimate allegiance has to be to God and to God alone. Now, end of verse 9 and beginning of verse 10, God gives us one motivation. As I have said before, Zig Ziglar was not the original motivational speaker. God's been in the business of motivating his people uh, from the beginning. Notice what he says Uh, He says, um, you shall not do this, that, or the other, uh, bowing down to them. uh, For, you see in verse 9, for, because, here's the reason, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Isn't that interesting? The motivation that God gives us for keeping this word is jealousy. 
Have you ever thought about that? Isn't that strange? Because don't we think of jealousy as a vice and not a virtue? How many of you say to yourself, wow, she's really a great person. She's really jealous all the time. See, we think of jealousy as a vice and not a virtue. And most of the time it is. But it has to at least possibly be a virtue at times because God is jealous. In fact, God is so jealous that in one text in Exodus, God says, my name is jealous. Uh, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at that next word, not lifting up the name of God in vain. And what does that mean? But God says, my name, among other things, is jealous. Jealousy so characterizes me that you can just call me Mr. Jealous if you would like. So jealousy must be a virtue. Let's just look at a a couple of brief things about God's jealousy. The first one is that God's jealousy is just. He's our covenant Lord. And to switch metaphors, that means he's our husband. See, from the Old Testament through the New, God describes his relationship with his people as a marriage relationship. Here's the only place where jealousy can be a virtue and not a vice in the marriage relationship. Because the marriage relationship is the only exclusive relationship. Now, sometimes we have a friend and another friend comes in. This has happened to all of us, hasn't it? Uh, And another, a third comes in and we feel jealous because we feel like affection, attention, time is going elsewhere that should be coming to us. That's the vice, folks. Because no matter what the friendship is like outside of marriage, that friendship is not exclusive. We may want to think of it as exclusive, but it's not. It's only the marriage relationship that is exclusive. But even in marriage, when we feel jealousy, most of the time it's a vice and not a virtue. Because our jealousy is self-preserving. We are jealous because we are trying to preserve ourselves, save ourselves, whereas that's not what God's jealousy is. God's jealousy is other-oriented. God's jealousy is seeking to save the relationship, not to preserve himself. When God is jealous because of the way you're acting with another suitor, spiritually speaking, it's because he has your best interest in mind. He doesn't feel threatened. He doesn't feel like something negative is going to happen to him. He's in it for you and for the relationship. And so his jealousy is just. It's an exclusive relationship. And when we, in the language of the Bible, go whoring after other gods, it's just for God to be jealous because we're violating that exclusivity of relationship. But God's jealousy is not only just, it's also necessary. After all, he is ultimate. We don't just say he's ultimate. We don't just think he is ultimate. Regardless of what we say or what we think, he is ultimate. And therefore, he has, in a sense, no choice but to demand our ultimate allegiance to him because he's ultimate. What else can he do? 
It's necessary for God. It's necessary for God to demand our ultimate allegiance. It just goes with the turf that he's the ultimate God and therefore our ultimate allegiance is due him. His jealousy is just. His jealousy is necessary. And as I've already hinted at, God's jealousy is loving. God alone can save you. God alone can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. How loving would it be if God just let you run after all sorts of things that can't save you? How loving would it be if he permitted you to go after things that will not satisfy your soul? The only loving thing for God to do is to say, no other gods before me. No images. No bowing down to them. No serving them. I love you so much that this is the only path I can possibly let you walk down. Now, it may seem odd, but I'm going to close with a scripture reading from 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 20 to 21. This is Samuel speaking to the people. Samuel said to the people, Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit, that cannot deliver, for they are empty. As the church, Jesus says to you this morning, do not turn aside from following the Lord your God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside to all of the empty things your culture offers you day after day after day as a substitute for me. Things that can't ultimately profit you. Things that cannot deliver you. Things that truly are empty. They're not me. I have come so that you have life in all of its fullness. For I am not empty. I am the fullness of God in bodily form. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your kindness to us in speaking to us. Even though we have fallen away from you and in speaking the ten words to us, And in telling us at the very beginning that you are the Lord, our God, and you have so graciously delivered us. And showing us your beauty and lovingly uh, warning us against giving our allegiance to things that are empty. Holy Spirit, take this word, we pray, and write it on our hearts that it might inform how we think and how we live in all the days that lie ahead, praying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.